Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 37. Uh, Genesis 37. It's the first book of the Bible. So if you've got one, crack it open. Go to the first book. You're there. All right. And then go 37 chapters in, and that's where we're going to be, uh, Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But let's all stand as we get our aerobics in this morning. I haven't preached in a, a couple of days, and so uh, it's a five-hour sermon going to happen, all right? Here we go. Genesis 37, verse 1, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, of, him, of them, to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around my sheaf and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in the mind. Now look up at the screen and read with me chapter 50, verse 20. Say it together. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You may be seated. Have you ever had a crazy dream? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of dream you have after eating Taco Bell at 11 o'clock at night. I'm not talking about the kind of dream that you had after you slathered your feet with lavender oil. If y'all know what I'm talking about, it's the secret to life, lavender oil. I used to think that stuff is voodoo, but it's not. But I'm not talking about that kind of dream. I'm talking about the vision you have for your life. You got a dream for your life? You know, we run around here and say, I'm living the dream. It's that gut sense that, that you have of, of what your purpose is in life. Or the idea you have for your future that you just cannot shake. And I'll tell you, when I was 16 years old, I felt like that God gave me that kind of dream, that kind of a vision. The kind of dream I'm talking about is not what you get necessarily when you're asleep, but it's the thing that keeps you from sleeping. You know, dreams are very vital to life. Without dreams, we kind of get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent and squander our lives on trivial things. God often gives his people dreams. Not necessarily, like I said, the ones you get at night, but, but those visions, that purpose. God in the Bible leads and guides his people through dreams. And we say, chase after their calling, their identity and their destiny. But, but you know, there's a danger in a dream. 
Because not every dream that you have is from God. Or not every version you have of God's dream is from God. Because there are some visions that you have for your future that are not God's dream for your life. I mean, often the dream that we have is the life that we want to live or the house that we want to live in or the career or the relationship or the fame or the fortune or the business we've been dreaming of. But sometimes those dreams are not God's dreams. They're not God's plan for our lives. The thing I know about dreams, though, is that dreams are hard to live with because there's a gap between receiving the dream and the fulfillment of the dream. Within that gap is anticipation, it's hope, but also pain and despair and disillusionment and even cynicism because often the fulfillment of that dream takes a whole lot longer than you think and it's not just a straight line. It's often a zigzag or up and down or high and low, and often it's a long, hard road. And, and then when you get to the end, it's not necessarily what you think. See, some of you have realized your dream, and you get there and, and you realize that it maybe wasn't what you thought it would be, and maybe you're a little disillusioned. Some of you, you have a dream, and you've been trying for years and years, but you're discouraged because it hasn't happened yet. But here's what I want you to think about. And what if, what if you and I, instead of focusing on the dream that we have for our lives, what if we started to pursue the dream that God has for our lives? What if we stopped living for our, the vision that we want and, and live for the vision that God wants? Do you think that if we started living for God's dream for our lives that it would change how we live? I totally do. And here's what I want you to understand, even as we begin this series, is that God's dream for your life is bigger and better and deeper than your dream for yourself. Now, if you truly believe that, if I truly believe that, it would change how we lived. But the word we're going to get in this series that I want to teach you, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, churchy word. It's the word providence. The word providence comes from the Latin. It's two words, pro, which means before, and vide, which means to see. And you can put them together to see before. Uh, the Westminster Confession puts it this way, that providence is this, is that God does hold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And in the life of Joseph, we will see the providence of God. Just as we sing from time to time here, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you've been so good to me. We will see that in the life of Joseph, even though he will go through dangerous toils and snares. Genesis 37, which we cracked open a second ago, is the last section of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It's the fourth scroll of the Genesis story. In the next 13 chapters of this book, we will see the life of Joseph unfold. And the interesting thing is that Joseph gets more airtime in the book of Genesis than the creation story, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason why is because of its importance. His story has an importance to the story of redemption. Now, what we have learned already is that Joseph is a dreamer. There are 21 dreams in the Bible, and 10 of those dreams are recorded in Genesis, and six of the 
10 are found in the story of Joseph. And each one of those dreams plays a part in bringing about God's plan for Joseph's life, Joseph's family, and really for you and I today. And so from the very beginning of Joseph's story, we will see the providence of God and how God's dream for Joseph's life was not necessarily what Joseph thought it would be, but it would change the world forever. Let's look at two things. Number one, I want you to see the predicament of the dreamer. In verse two, we're told that these are the generations of Jacob. Now, if you're new to church, Jacob's father's name is Isaac. And Isaac's father's name was Abraham. And Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. All right, here we go. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had a bunch of kids, and one of which is a dude, a guy named Joseph. And Joseph, we're now given a time signature, is 17 years old. Some of you all are 17 in this room. And Joseph was born in the chosen family. And here's what you see about the chosen family. They were highly dysfunctional. I mean, his family put the fun in dysfunctional. And and the interesting thing about the Bible is it doesn't just sugarcoat people's lives. It tells us really how it was. And Joseph's family was a hot mess. And the reason it was a hot mess is because this was inherited from his father and his father and his father. And what you find in the Bible is a pattern of brokenness that is repeated constantly. It's a family, it's kind of a family tradition to be broken. And one of the ways that we see the brokenness, the dysfunctionality of this family is found in verse number three, in which the daddy, Jacob, loved Joseph, the son, more than the other sons that he had. See, Jacob had... 11 sons other than Joseph, and yet he loved Joseph the most. He played favorites. Now, why would Jacob play favorites? Because actually Jacob himself was a victim of having a father who had a favorite son, but yet that favorite son wasn't Jacob. Jacob grew up in a house where his daddy loved his other brother more than him. And he grew up in his entire life desperately seeking the love of his father and desperately lacking the love that he needed. And because of that, he had a deep, deep daddy wound. And I will tell you that a lot of men struggle and carry about daddy wounds in which they've either were ignored, neglected, or abused or abandoned by their father. And I will tell you, especially in men, it's difficult. But you'll even find this in both men and women, whereas you have maybe in your life experienced this neglect, this abuse from your father who either was there or was absent. And what happens is he carried it around and this daddy wound caused Jacob to look for love from someone else, to look for approval from someone else. And so Jacob looks to Rachel, this woman that he will marry, to be the one who fills the void in his life. And what you'll find is that Jacob loved Rachel more than anything else. And and in his mind, he believed that if he could just marry this woman named Rachel, that his life would be whole. And so he goes to this guy named Laban and he says, I will work seven years for your daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, all right, dude, come on. So he worked seven years for Rachel. And on the wedding night, he doesn't marry Rachel. (laughs) He gets tricked. (laughs) And he marries Leah. 
And so he says to, to, to Laban, he says, I'll work seven more years for Rachel. And so seven years, and he marries Rachel. And listen, when he marries Rachel, he feels like life is now worth living because of all of Jacob's wife, wives, Rachel was his favorite. And by the way, of all my wives, April is my favorite. <laughs> we only have one. <laughs> and so Rachel has two kids with Jacob. Joseph is the firstborn and then Benjamin and she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So that's a lot of backstory, but here's why that's important is that when Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin, the focus of Jacob's life is gonna move from, Je from Rachel to Joseph and Joseph is gonna become the emotional center of Jacob's life. So that every time he saw him, every time he talked to him, Jacob's face lit up and sparkled like it did when he saw Rachel. And what happened is, is that Joseph became Jacob's idol. And he lavished money on Joseph and lavished gifts on Joseph. I mean, Joseph got the extra piece of chicken at dinner. Joseph got more presents at Christmas. Joseph had more friends over to hang out with. And Jacob gave his son a coat, a robe of many colors. Now, maybe you have heard about this coat of many colors. Maybe you've seen the musicals about the coat of many colors. But I want you to understand that's not what the Bible actually is describing here. It's a little bit of a mistranslation. It should probably be translated the coat of long sleeves. But the coat of many colors sounds a whole lot cooler, right? And so it, it may have had multiple colors, but really it was a tunic. It was, a, it, was a, it was an outfit that went from the wrist to the ankles, almost like a onesie. And it was ornate and it was expensive. But what makes this coat of many colors, this robe of many colors so important is that it was given to the one, it was normally given to the one in the family who had authority. And it was a coat that was a long sleeve coat that showed that whoever wore that did not have to do manual labor like the other ones. If you had a short sleeve shirt, you did manual labor. If you had a long sleeve shirt, you were the one in authority. And this was typically worn by the older brother. But here, Joseph, who is one of the youngest, is the one wearing this. And so the other brothers, I mean, they got their clothes from the clearance rack at Dollar General. And Joseph here, he gets his tunic of many colors. And he wore it every day. And it was almost taunting his brothers. And so verse 4 says that when his brothers saw this, the that their father loved him, Joseph, more than them, they hated him. You know, Jacob's favoritism poisoned the family. And, and I think J Jacob was blind to it, but, but yet everyone else can see it. And I will tell you that if you struggle with favoritism in your family, you are probably blind to it, but everyone else can see it. And, and the reality is, is that when you show favoritism, you're not doing anyone a favor at all. As a matter of fact, you're causing hurt, you're causing damage. Even when it comes to employee and employer relationships, if you show favoritism to one employee over the other, it can cause hurt and cause damage. And the family dynamic, uh, listen, when, when you show favoritism, you're not thinking of the child, you're thinking of yourself. Being partial to a ch one child over the other is not a sign of love, but it's actually a demonstration of your own weakness. And that brokenness will be passed on to your kids. The very thing that Jacob hated in his father is the very thing he did to his son. And you think that warped Joseph? 
Absolutely it did. Some of you kind of have this VBS flannel graph version of Joseph of being a really good kid, but he was a spoiled rotten brat. Verse two says that he brought a, re- a bad report about his brothers. Now, it, it could be that his brothers did something really bad and they probably did, but the word here in the Hebrew means a false report or a misrepresentation of the truth. That what Joseph did is he heard his brothers did something, he immediately tells his dad and he, and he tells about how bad his brothers are and how good of a boy he is. So either A, he's a liar, or B, he's a tattletale who wants to constantly make himself be the hero and everyone else be a loser. And he was probably very hard to be around. He was probably a very annoying kid, probably felt morally superior to his brothers. And so listen, his daddy shows him favoritism. He's got this coat of many colors, this, this, this authoritative tunic, and then he's ratting out his brothers, he's tattletelling, and then verse five, Joseph gets a dream. So he's asleep at night, he gets a dream, and then he decides in his infinite 17-year-old wisdom to tell it to his brothers. And he says, behold, let us pay attention, I had a dream. And in this dream, we were out in the field and I had my bundle of wheat. That's what a sheaf is, a bundle of wheat. I had my bundle of wheat and my bundle of wheat stood up and it was bigger than all y'all's bundles of wheat. And so y'all came up and bowed down to my bundle of wheat. In other words, y'all are gonna bow down to me one day because I am special. And the brother said, yeah, you are special. (laughs) They say in verse eight, are we gonna indeed... Are, we gonna, are you going to reign over us? Are we going to bow down to you? And listen, the dream that Joseph had here is so countercultural. It's so weird. It's so crazy. It's so impossible because this was a patriarchal, hierarchical system in which the older always ruled over the younger. And it was a system in which the younger always bowed down to the older. And so when they hear their younger brother tell everyone that, they're going to bow down to him. Uh, Joseph thought everyone was just going to affirm him. They were going to affirm his dream and they were going to start a GoFundMe page for him. (laughs) They thought everyone was going to support him and everyone was going to understand him. And what he thought was going to impress them actually enraged them. And Joseph is going to abuse this dream rather than use the dream. And so when that's over with, he gets another dream. And guess what he does? This 17-year-old is not very bright. He goes and tells his brother and his father the dream. And the second dream was bigger and bolder than the first dream. And he says, behold, the sun and the moon, that's mom and dad, and the 11 stars, that's the 11 brothers. I had this dream that all of y'all were gonna bow down to me because I'm a shining star. I don't care who you think I am, I'm a shining star. And not only, brothers, does dad think I'm awesome, but God thinks I'm awesome too. (laughs) It was so bad that Jacob had to rebuke him and say, listen, you gotta shut up. (laughs) Who do you think you are? And so what you have here is Jacob is raising a sociopath who doesn't understand the impact of his words. He doesn't understand what he's saying. He should have kept it to himself. But here you have this young, arrogant, very handsome 
young guy who was cruel. And so verse 11, it says here that his brothers were jealous of him. Now, Joseph's kind of in a no-win no situation. He, got, he has this dream, and he's got a dad who loves him and shows favoritism towards him. And so because his daddy, he's kind of daddy's special little, little snowflake, <laughs> little skittle. Oh, you're a skittle, Joseph. You're daddy's favorite. He wants to please his daddy, right? And, and listen, his brothers hate his guts. And so maybe in his mind, he's thinking, you know what? If I just tell everybody this dream, then they're going to understand this is why daddy loves me. Because I'm special. I'm a snowflake. I'm a skittle. I'm a sunbeam. I'm a shining star. But guess what happened? This is the moment where they said, we got to kill the boy. Now, why am I telling you this? Because often many of you, when you get a vision for your life, when you get a dream for your life, you're not really ready to handle it. But here's what you also find is that God gives dreams to broken people. Jo listen, do not romanticize Joseph. Joseph was a young, arrogant fool who was a victim of his, of his father's fa favoritism and his own brokenness. And Joseph was just as broken as his father and his brother, and yet God still had a dream for his life. And that gives me hope. Does that give any of you hope? That God still has dreams for broken people. That even though you have sinned, even though you've screwed up, even though you've messed up, even though you have done some terrible things, God still has a vision for your life. And God gave this dream to Joseph, even though Joseph, when he got the dream, wasn't ready for it, nor was he worthy of it. But God gave him this dream because God was gonna work in Joseph's life so much that Joseph would live up to the dream that God had for him. See, God gave this dream, this vision to Joseph, and God was going to be the one who would bring it about. See, I don't want you to get this mindset that this was Joseph's dream that he wanted God to fulfill for him. Like, don't get this idea when I'm talking about dream and vision that you come up with a dream, you come up with a vision, you come up with a plan for your life and you say, all right, God, here's my dream, here's my vision, you fulfill it like he's some genie. This is not Joseph's dream for God to fulfill. This was God's dream for Joseph to fulfill. This was God's dream that Joseph would live out and God would be the one that would get him through it. So God uses broken people and gives them extraordinary dreams to do what is seemingly impossible. So that's the story today. Everybody happy? <laughs> but what do we get from this? I'm so glad you asked. Because I want to give you three principles when it comes to dreams that we're going to look at all throughout this series. And these three principles are going to help you in your own personal life when you think about your dream. I don't know what your dream is. I don't know what the vision is for your life. I don't know what God's put on your heart. But I want to teach you three things today that you're going to learn from the life of Joseph that we will find all throughout this story. The first thing I want you to learn about the dream is this. The dream is harder than you think. Because for Joseph it was. The dream was much harder than he thought. When he was a 17-year-old boy and he got this dream, 
It was just a small glimpse of what God had planned for his life. I mean, all he saw was that his bundle of wheat was bigger and that his star was brighter, but it was just a small glimpse that there was way more that God was going to do in his life to prepare him for what God had planned for his life. Do you understand that there's a whole lot of stuff God is doing in your life right now that you're not even aware of? But the things that he's doing are things that he's doing to prepare you for what he's got planned for you. But in the moment when you get the dream, when you get the vision, you, you don't think of all that because when Joseph got this dream about wheat and about stars, he didn't see the pit. He didn't see Egypt. He didn't see slavery. He didn't see Potiphar's wife. He didn't see the baker or the butler or the prison. He didn't see Pharaoh. All he saw was the end. Do you understand that when God gives you a dream, there's way more that you don't know than what you do know. A theologian named N.T. Wright said this. He says, all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. You know, we don't know every detail. You don't know the story of your life. You're still in the middle of it. But you know the destination. See, the point of the dream that God gives you is, is not so that you know every detail of what will happen, but it's how you can live in the present world. I mean, the reason God has given you this dream is because there's a hope, there's a purpose, but it doesn't tell you every little thing. As a matter of fact, one of the big sins in the Bible that we don't really talk about is the sin called divination. In the Old Testament, people would try to seek out their future. They would try to figure out their future. They would use diviners. They would, they would practice certain arts to figure out what exactly was gonna happen in their future. Today, you know, people use uh, tarot cards and go to psychics. You know, I've never been to a psychic and they know I'm not gonna come, right? <laughs> Y'all catch that one in a second. But in the Bible, the sin of divination is a big no-no. God does not want you to know the exact details of your life. He just doesn't. I mean, do you, well, let's think about this. Would you want to know the day of your death and how you died? I wouldn't. And if you would, you're weird. <laughs> God doesn't want to. Here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust him. John Mark Comer, who's a, who's a pastor and a teacher, he said this. He says, we think that knowledge is power. And if we know the future, then we can be in control of the future. And if we can be in control in the of the future, then we don't have to depend on or trust in God. But God doesn't want us to have control of our future. He wants us to have faith in him. And God will tell us just enough about tomorrow to help us trust in him today. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know he holds my hand. But sometimes when you get the dream, you don't see how hard it's going to be. I mean, Joseph's youthful enthusiasm romanticized what's going to happen. And it's so easy for us to romanticize the future because we've been so programized and pro we, there's so much television and Hollywood and media to, to make us think that it's going to be, everything's going to be good. And we don't, when we're going, we don't want to rationalize the pain it takes to realize the dream, because we like photoshopped and insta-filtered dreams. I mean, let me give you an example. Some of you that are single in the room. 
Maybe some of you, you know, maybe when you were younger, you were single, and you thought, man, the dream for my life is to be married. And so one day you're going to find your perfect soulmate. And that person's going to complete you. They're going to be the other side of the Oreo. They're going to fill the void in your life. And you are going to have joy. It's a dream. Some of you single people right now, it's a dream. You're hoping now match.com will get you one, all right? A Christian mingle. If you're single, whatever. That's a dream. All right, married people, will you help out all the single people? Right? See, when you were single, you romanticized the ideal of marriage, thinking it's going to be great. And then you get married and realize it's not as simple or awesome as you think. I mean, what starts out as an ideal turns into an ordeal, and many of you want a new deal, okay? <laughs> and why is that? Why is it marriage is hard? Because marriage is the union of two broken people. And marriage doesn't create problems. Marriage, marriage reveals problems. And divorce rates are high in America because people go into marriage with stars in their eyes, not seeing that true love involves self-sacrifice and self-denial for the good of the other person. And so they get married and they're disillusioned and they're discouraged because they have an unhealthy, romantic view of marriage. And some of you are the same boat, not necessarily about marriage, but you have this unhealthy, unrealistic view of the future. And the reason why is because Hollywood and Disney and self-help gurus and the American dream have tricked you. And the next generation of Americans have grown up so bubble wrapped that when hard times come, they take off. But let me just tell you something. If God's given you a dream, if he's given you a vision and a purpose, it's going to be harder than you think. But the second thing, it's going to take longer than you expect. In Joseph's life, which we're going to walk through, it's going to be 22 years before there's any type of fulfillment of the dream. Genesis 37 to Genesis 45 is 22 years. He's going to start out as a 17-year-old, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and then he will end up in Egypt second in command at 39 years old, and that's just the beginning of the fulfillment of the dream. There was a gap. Listen, things just don't happen instantly. One of the misnomers that I had and a lot of people my age had, millennials, okay, we are the original snowflakes, as I said a minute ago, all right? And one of the misnomers we had growing up in my generation is that you thought that as soon as you graduated high school or college that you should live at the same standard of living as your parents did. That's not good and that's not true and that is wrong. Because what they had took time, took hard work. But you understand that the bigger the dream, the, normally the longer it takes to see the fulfillment of the dream. And sometimes God's given you a vision and a dream that you'll never see fulfilled in your lifetime. But think about some of the people in the Bible. Abraham, as we talked about earlier, was given a dream. He was given a dream about a son. He waited 100 years. He was 100 years old when he had Isaac. Do you imagine having a kid at 100? Chasing him around? Do you imagine taking a little baby, a little toddler to the beach? You're 102 now? Yeah. Moses? 
was given a dream to deliver his people from slavery. He waited 40 years in the wilderness. And then finally he shows up. He delivers his people and then he wanders in the wilderness for 40 years and then he dies on top of the mountain overlooking the promised land and never went in. David dreamed of building God's temple, prepared for decades, saved tons and tons of money and resources and then died without seeing the temple built. The apostle Paul dreamed about reaching Israel and the nations for Christ and died without seeing it. See, sometimes the dream just takes a whole lot longer than you think. The great theologian Tom Petty put it best. He said, the waiting is the hardest part. There are no instant dreams being fulfilled. And sometimes, you know, you'll see people and, and you'll see them, like even in Naples, you can kind of see it. You'll see people and you're like, man, man, they're, they're, they're driving what I want to drive and they're living where I want to live and they're wearing what I want to wear and they're doing what I want to do. And you, you look at, you don't know how much hard work it took for them to be where they are. You don't know how long it took or you see someone spiritually that's, that's so much more spiritually mature than you are and, and they're walking with God and they're, they're doing this and you're like, man, I want to be just like them. But listen, there are no shortcuts to that. You don't know how long it took. You don't know the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows that it took them. But I'm just going to just tell you right now, I want to pop the little bubble, is that the dream is harder than you think and it's often longer than you expect. And the, fourth, the third thing, because I only have three, not four, is that the dream was deeper than he could imagine. You understand the dream that God's given you is deeper than you can even think? Think about it, as a kid, Joseph interpreted the dream, he interpreted that dream to be all about him, all about his glory. Some of you have been given a dream and you think, man, it's all about me. Because in his mind, he was a shiny star. He was the center of his family, the center of attention. And he even attached himself to this version of the dream it wasn't God's dream at all because Joseph's version of God's dream was too shallow. See, the dream that God had for him was not about Joseph's status. The dream that God had for him was about Joseph's service. The reason why they're bowing down is not because Joseph is great. They're bowing down because the God of Joseph is great. Do you understand that the dream that God gave Joseph was not about Joseph's position in the family. It was about his purpose for the family. And what if, think about this, what if the greatest thing God is going to do in and through your life is not about you? What if the greatest thing, the dream, the vision, all that you are dreaming and hoping and praying for, what if that is just to help someone else know him more? What if the greatest fulfillment of your life is to contribute to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self? You know, the reality is, is that often our dreams are about us. It's about our life. It's about our family. It's about our future. And the majority of those dreams are shallow. I mean, think about this. Most parents want their kids, the dream, their dream for their kids' lives is to grow up, move out of the house, <laughs> amen. Grow up, move out of the house, go to college, go to an Ivy League college, or go to some prestigious college, get a good degree, get a good career, make a lot of money, and take care of them when they're old. 
right? That's like, or some of you, your parents, or some of you, your dream for your kid is that your kid becomes the athlete that you never was, that you never were. And so you want them, you're going to pour into them and you're going to spend so much time on them and they're going to be the next whatever. And that one day they're going to be in the NBA or the NFL or they're going to be the WNBA or they're going to be a world-class volleyball player and they're going to get on TV one day and say, I thank God for my mama and my daddy <laughs> to make me the person I am today. Or some of you, man, your goal for your kids is that they become the next entrepreneur, the next Elon Musk or the next musician like Taylor Swift or whatever those dreams are. But let me just say this right now. What happens if those are your dreams for your kids, but they're not God's dreams for your kids? What if your kids do not realize the dream you have for them? Are they a failure? What if God's dream for your kids is bigger and better and deeper than your dream for your kids? Because think about this. The dream that God gave Joseph wasn't about Joseph. The dream was how God was gonna use Joseph to save the world, but not how you think. He's gonna save his family from famine, gonna create a nation. But you know, for God to bring that to pass, you know what God had to do? God had to strip the 17-year-old Joseph of his ego, his pride, and seeking his own glory. Do you understand that for you to realize the dream God has for you, he's often got to strip you down? Because often the dream is all about us, but the dream has never really been about us. It's always been about him, and it's always been about others. But the beauty is this, is that God's dream for your life is always better than your dream for your life. Always. Do you know why? Because he's God. He made you. And you know, I want to go ahead and tell you right now, I was about to end and y'all are happy, all right? I want to, you want to know what God's dream is for your life? I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell everybody God's dream for your life. Promise you this is it. God's dream for your life is this, is that you know him, that you love him, that you serve him, that you live for him and live with him forever. And every other dream you have, <laughs> praise God, and every other dream you have is ultimately about that dream. That you would know him, you would love him, you would serve him, you would live for him. I mean, that should be your dream for your kids and your grandkids. All right, so let's end. Seatbelts on, tray table in an upright and locked position. We're about to land. Verse 11. Joseph's telling these dreams. The very end, verse 11 says, his father kept the saying in mind. In other words, Jacob tucked these dreams into his mind. Now, I want to reiterate, these dreams were countercultural, crazy, and impossible. But Jacob, Jacob did not dismiss them as being foolish or wrong, but he thought about them. Now, why would he think about them? You know why? Because Jacob had some weird dreams himself. See, not only was Jacob the younger son, but he was also a dreamer. 
And he had a dream one night that there was this ladder and that angels were going up and down and up and down and up and down. And he just knew there was something bigger going on. But he didn't understand it. And maybe he was thinking, you know, maybe my son, God is speaking to my son. And there's something bigger going on here. Well, let me let you in on something. There was something bigger going on, even though Jacob didn't understand. And I want to tell you in your life that you understand that there's something bigger going on in your life than you understand. That even though it may seem crazy, and even though it may seem impossible, and even though it may seem countercultural, that God is doing something bigger than you can imagine. You say, well, how do you know that, preacher? How do you know, Alan, that God can fulfill some crazy dreams? I'm going to give you one word. Jesus. Because what we're going to see in this story is that Joseph is a type of, of Jesus. Because Jesus was the favored son of the father, wasn't he? And Jesus wore a robe and wears a robe of righteousness that he deserved. And Jesus was hated by his own people, his brothers, and they crucified him. And the dream that God had for Jesus, the plan that God had for Jesus was to save the world, but to save the world in a way that didn't make any sense at all. And it required a lot of suffering. And even the disciples, those who followed Jesus, they had a different dream for Jesus than Jesus had for himself. Because their dream for Jesus is that Jesus was all about them and their glory. And so when they saw Jesus hanging on a cross, they thought their dream was dead and they were confused. But on Sunday, what they thought was a nightmare was just the beginning of their happily ever after. See, what's going on in your life may seem like a nightmare. But if you know Jesus, it's just the beginning of your happily ever after. Why? Because the point of Joseph's story and the point of the whole Bible is to show us that in all things, God is fully in control of history, working out his perfect plan to put Jesus on the throne, to save his people from their sins, and to bring them to heaven forever for his glory. That's what you trust in. Because that is where history is headed. So God's dream for you is bigger than your dream for you. God's plan for your life is far better than you can imagine. Trust him. Just trust him. Because fear is not your future. Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the fact that we can trust that your plans come to pass even though we don't understand them. And God, even though it may seem crazy and foolish and countercultural and impossible because Jesus came out of that tomb, all things are possible. So Father, we lay our dreams at your feet and we want your dreams for our lives. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Fear is not our future.